I knew Betty well. And before I made that trip, I went down to the MCG on a quiet day to look at that statue of her and with her mouth open and hands stretched out. And I, I'm not too proud to say I had a real cry, to be honest. Welcome once again to At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson, and if you've been inspired by the events at the Tokyo Olympic Games, we've got a very special episode for you as we go back 65 years just to get a feel for an amazing fortnight in Melbourne when the MCG was the main stadium for Australia and the Southern Hemisphere's first ever Olympics, remembered fondly as the Friendly Games. The voice of the Olympics in this country, Bruce McAvaney, will reflect on the significance of those extraordinary achievements on the MCG track, led by Australia's female runners, golden girl Betty Cuthbert, who would win three gold medals, and the 30-year-old Shirley Strickland, who triumphed twice in her third and final games. Spent a lot of time with Betty talking about those days. Actually, Shirley Strickland, when she was alive as well, I mean, and Herb Elliott, you know, Herb sat in the stand and watched Kutz break Puri in the 10,000 metres and said, that's what I want to do. And four years later, he won the gold medal in Rome. God, what, a, what an impact it had. How important it was at the times. Former multiple world record holder and dual bronze medalist from Melbourne, Marlene Matthews and hurdler Gloria Cook-Wigney are now in their mid-80s and are able to bring us what are still very strong personal recollections of the highs and lows of competing at the Olympic Games. And I stood facing Jeannie. I said, I'm not going to look at the board. You tell me if the number comes up. And she said, I did, I did. And then I turned around and faced the board, and there I was. I was in the final. What did you do? I just sat up in the grandstand crying my eyes out, watching them win the gold medal. Oh, did, did you really? You really were crying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that hurt. That really hurt. The cultural impact of the 56 Games was also enormous, both in opening Australia up to the influences of a much wider world and for the introduction of television, which began in this country with live games broadcasts. When I said to my parents, I'm going to uh, go and work for Channel 7, they said, what actually is that? And I said, a television station. For a 14-year-old kid to be part of the Olympic Games at the MCG has really stuck with me for the rest of my life. Gordon Bennett's story is coming up, and so is the tale of how the biggest Olympic attraction at our National Sports Museum almost didn't survive. The cauldron from 56, as ignited by Juan Clarks, that is our pride and joy. That got centrepiece, and it was lost, effectively. They rescued it, and it survived. Um, and there it is in the middle of the museum display. It's a beautiful thing.
Well, it's fascinating to listen to the perception of the city of Melbourne from the official film of the games made at the time. Melbourne is hardly more than a provincial town, capital of Australia's smallest state. Population, just over one million. Now, for the first time in history, the games will be played in the Southern Hemisphere. And when they are through, Christmas. Instead of coming down chimneys, Santa Claus rides ashore on a surfboard. The MCG was already a huge sporting venue by world standards, but unbelievably, it almost didn't get chosen as the main stadium for the Games, as historian and official MCC librarian David Studham explains. Originally, when the group from Melbourne bid and won the bid in 1949, they were looking at using the, the showground behind you know, Flemington Racecourse. Um, and in 1951, the Prime Minister replied to the, the Premier at the time and said, look, we're not going to give you funding for that. We'd prefer you use the MCG. The Olympic Organising Committee even rejected that advice and decided to go ahead and choose Princess Park at Carlton as their preferred venue. And they were aiming to to turn that into a 100,000-seat stadium within four years. But funding became an issue, and they soon realised that their original budget was way under what they would need. And the Prime Minister again called a conference of all those involved. And finally, you'll love this, 1953, so you know, four years after they've won the Games, they finally decided on the MCG. The decision would see the old grandstand, which had been built in the 1880s, knocked down and the construction of a new Olympic stand. But there were some nervous moments along the way. When the president of the IOC came out in um, 55, early 55, he was complaining that things aren't going to be ready and we might have to move the Games to Rome. He thought the 1960 Games in Rome, they were more prepared than <laughs> Melbourne was. And that really shocked people and they, they got a finger out and got on with it. But having said that, it, it was a close thing. Most of the stand was first used for the 1956 Grand Final and they had a record crowd of you know 115,000 there. People were hanging from the rafters and it was not safe. So the health inspectors came in and said, right, we need to set a limit on the number of people that can actually attend events at the Games. So you, you don't get a crowd above 110,000. Thankfully, everything was in place by November 22, 1956, and the opening ceremony took place with John Landy taking the athlete's oath and Ron Clark famously carrying the Olympic torch into the stadium and ignoring burns to his hand to light the Olympic cauldron high above the stands. The runner is approaching the bowl. The flame is held high. And the Olympic flame is alight. For our athletes like Gloria Cook-Wigney, who had just turned 22, it was a special day. Well, it still is fresh in my memory. I can remember certain things, but at my age, just things I forget as well. But the thing that I remember most of all is the, the day of the opening of the Olympics when the athletes were all in the same bus and we were making our way towards the stadium and the streets were just lined with thousands of people. There were people everywhere and they were waving flags. But our bus didn't have an Australian flag on it, so they really didn't know who they were waving at. So the bus driver pulled up and he managed to get a flag, which he put up on the bus, and everybody then knew that we were the first bus in the parade to the um, stadium. And it was just unbelievable. So it was just a feeling that the Australian people were all out there. They were cheering us and on our way. <laughs> 
I guess the ceremony must have been much simpler in those days, but the Parade of Nations must have been something pretty amazing. Oh, it was. Because Australian people were wonderful. I can remember walking into the stadium. It was just absolutely jam-packed full of people and there was a lot of shouting and calling out good wishes to everybody here. It was very good. We stood on the Richmond football ground for hours waiting to march in. I remember that. We oldies, as they called us, right, always wished that they would go back to that classic opening. And it was it was a, a classic opening in 1956. You marched in. We even had a, a sergeant major come and coach us how to march um, before the opening ceremony. Not like they do now. They they walk on like you know straggle along like Brown's cows, um, <laughs> and uh, and us oldies think that's disgusting. We really do. It was just so simple the opening ceremony. Then it was just wonderful. The athletes were housed in a brand new Olympic village constructed in the Melbourne suburb of Heidelberg, which proved to be a happy existence, albeit with one major difference. In those days, the girls were locked up. With- away from the men, by, <laughs> would you believe, about a 10-foot wire fence, which separated us. <laughs> and um, some of the, the guys were really funny. They used to pretend that they were trying to jump over the fence with the um, pole vault <laughs> and things like that. Anyway, no, it was a great feeling in the village. And um, if we had to go out for some reason, There'd be hordes of people outside kind of wishing us well and crowding everybody's body. And it was, it was really a great feeling. And you even had a special occasion in the village. I, I was born in November and we were um, at the Games. And I still have a photo of all the girls standing around and someone put in a cake. And I remember them all kind of singing happy birthday to me. <laughs> the impact of the events on the MCG track are still amazing to reflect on. And they were led by Cuthbert and Strickland, who helped produce our most successful games on the track. Look, I was born in 53, so it was a bit early for me, but over the years, you know, I've spoken to so many people that were there, uh, including long conversations with Ron Clark, who, you know, lit the cauldron, so to speak, and and, and John Landy, who gave the oath. So, you know, Betty Cuthbert, I'd spent a lot of time with Betty talking about those days, and Dawn Fraser, not in the MCG, obviously, Shirley Strickland when she was alive as well. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these people are no longer with us, as you know, but, and Herb Elliott, you know, Herb sat in the stand and watched Kutz break Piri in the 10,000 metres and said, that's what I want to do, and four years later, he won the gold medal in Rome, you know. God, what a what an impact it had! How important it was at the time. So you know, and even the chairman of of, of, of the Seven Network, um, Kerry Stokes, talks glowingly and with great affection about Chilla Porter and Charles Dumas and that high jump that went on forever. So a lot of that, a lot of that, Hutto, is still very much in my mind, even though I wasn't there. So they were called the Friendly Games. Um, there were some amazing performances. You know, Betty. God, you know, with her three gold medals and then eight years later went on to do something nobody's ever done and, and add a 400 to the 100 and 200. So, yeah, um, wish I'd been there. Um, <laughs> but feel like in some ways we have, eh? The 
road to the Olympics only really began for Gloria well into her teenage years. I left school when I was 15 and was at the school sports, um, which was Canterbury School Girls High School. Um, I won a, a whole lot of the races and the girl who really was expected to win was so kind and she said to me, you ought to join our club, uh, which was Western Suburbs. And she took me along um, to the club and I immediately knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so for the next number of years, I traveled out to Concord Oval. People say to me, how come you started hurdling? And well, it was really funny because being a young kid, I thought, you know, I should win a couple of races. But I could never win a race, even in, at the club. And I wondered why, but now I can understand. Marlene Matthews and Betty Cuthbert were in the club, and I always came third. <laughs> and one of the coaches there said to me, why don't you try hurdling? And I did, and I loved it. It meant twice as much training because, so we get to the club and we, and we do our sprint training. And then I used to have to get the hurdles out and measure them up, set them out on the oval, and then I'd start my hurdles training. So there was ah. quite a lot of training involved in it. How did you qualify for the Games, Gloria? The Australian Championships were in Melbourne, and we thought they're going to choose three people from each event. Anyway, I went in the hurdles race and Shirley Strickland came first and Norma Thrower, who was the girl from South Australia, came second and I came third. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful, I'm in. And anyway, later on that day, someone approached me and said that I had to run again the next day again because there were a a few people from Melbourne who had expected to get in and didn't. So they wanted me to run against these girls just another trial. Oh. <laughs> you can imagine that night I was very nervous. Yeah. Anyway, fortunately, the next day I won the next trial race. So then I realised that I was in. Did you feel a sense, and to the other athletes, I suppose, the ones that were, were favourites, was, was there a sense of expectation that, you know, Australia would win lots of gold medals or was it, was it a well, little we, more relaxed? We, did, we really didn't know. Because the only one who was experienced was Shirley Strickland because she'd previously been in the previous Olympics, which was in Helsinki, which she won. And she was the only one that was experienced in our little women's athletic team. And um, for us, it was, you know, a new experience. Well, we didn't have a lot of expectations because we didn't know a lot of what was going on overseas. You know, back in those days, we didn't have television. And we went into those games not not really knowing who any of our competitors were. To me, my main competitor was Betty. I couldn't, I don't think we could name any of the, well, I couldn't have anyway named any of the overseas competitors at that stage. Was there a sense yeah. of celebrity about the the athletes even then? Oh, yes. After Saturday, what, which was called the End Club, you couldn't wait till the paper came out the next day and it always have photos of this one. And, you know, there was a lot of publicity by the newspapers in those days, you know, people would know who you were. And did you enjoy that? And did, did the others enjoy that? Oh, yeah, of course we did. <laughs> but the, only, the only thing that I, I still feel is that 
they put so much pressure on us, particularly the swimmers. The pressure that they had would have been enormous because um, they were expected to do so well. And as you've seen in previous years, you know, people had a few um, problems with depression and things like that. And was probably because of all the um, attention that athletes and swimmers got um, during those times when they were at the top of their sport. And I felt really sorry for the swimmers because they, you know, used to get so much public um, adultation and then one day it was all finished. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So was that a, was that an issue even back then? Well, back then we weren't as lucky as, as the athletes of today are because we had one muscle that he was the only person, if you had a problem with any of your muscles, he was the only one who was there. We didn't have any psychologists or dietitians or all the things that they have today. Yeah. It was pretty um, basic. They are so lucky today with the um, with the help that they get along the way. So when your racing began, were you were you confident? No, I wasn't all that confident. Um, that's why I, I, I say to you, I wish we'd had more ad- advisors there. We didn't have anyone to say, "Come on, you can do it." Anyone to encourage you before you went out onto the um, right. onto the ground. So it was close to whether you made the final or not. What happened immediately after you finished your semi-final? When I finished pretty close to the fence and my and I happened to spy my friend Jeannie Coulter, her name was, <laughs> and I stood facing Jeannie. I said, I'm not going to look at the board. You tell me if the number comes up. <laughs> and she said, it did, it did. <laughs> and, um, and then I turned around and faced the board and there, there I was. I was, I was in the final. While Gloria was delighted to take her place in the final, most of the eyes around the MCG were on Shirley Strickland, who was looking to back up her gold medal from Helsinki and build on her extraordinary tally of five Olympic medals. Strickland was running on the outside lane six closest to the members' stand and soon had the fans on their feet as she took control of the race and held off West German Gisela Kohler and fellow Australian Norma Thrower. It was a stunning performance in Shirley's third and final Olympics. Cook Wigney began from the inside lane and made a fine start, but was out of the medals by the end. It's better to be closer to the middle because then you know where you are and what's happening. I just wish that I could run that final again. I hit a hurdle, which I very rarely did, and people have said to me, oh, you must have had a lot of accidents. I... Only had one fall in all that time over a hurdle, and I was doing very, very well up to that stage. And I think, oh, if I could only run that race again. <laughs> the most anticipated contest on the MCG track, from an Australian perspective, was the women's 100 metres, which featured three Aussie competitors. 18-year-old Betty Cuthbert, the 30-year-old reigning world record holder and mother of one Shirley Strickland, and 22-year-old Marlene Matthews. 
Strickland failed to make it past the heats, while Cuthbert set a new Olympic record in her heat before easing up and being surprised to be passed in her semi-final by Krista Stubnik of East Germany. It was Matthews who recorded the overall fastest time of the semi-finals in the second race. Marlene had witnessed the path to the top, attending the same Western Sydney school as a number of older girls who would go on to represent Australia at the Helsinki Games of 1952. And she began producing promising results in her teenage years. You know, like success breeds success, they say, and the more you win and the more you do well, the more you want to do it. And that's how it happened with me. I mean, I started off in Interclub and uh, I was winning um, races there. And yes, it, it just sort of went on from there and I just got better and better, I suppose. And I, and I enjoyed it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was training and studying, but then about a third of the way through fifth year, it was getting a little bit difficult. So I suppose a lot of mums and dads then said, well, look, if she leaves school and concentrates on her athletics, she'll probably see more of the world and get just as much education as she would at school. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I always wanted to be a phys ed teacher, but I didn't go on then. I left school and then and uh, went from there. Betty Cuthbert had developed a love for winning races from her primary school days and was known for her unique running style with her high knee lifts, lengthy strides and a wide open mouth. In the months leading up to Melbourne, she set a new world record in the 200 metres. But could she eclipse Matthews and Stubnik in the 100 final? A start in the 100 metres and it's a good start too. It's Betty Cuthbert going out. Great guns in the centre of the track. Daniels on the outside is also doing well. But Betty Cuthbert's going to the tape. And Betty Cuthbert's going to win. Betty Cuthbert first. Betty Cuthbert first in the 100 metres. A gold medal for Australia. She got up just to beat Stubnik and Matthews. Betty Cuthbert has won the day. And so Cuthbert was on her way to becoming Australia's golden girl. It was, of course, only the start of her brilliant 1956 Olympic campaign. Betty's time was 11.5 seconds, 0.1 of a second slower than her own Olympic record set in the heat. And it was the same time as Matthews ran in her semi-final win. But Marlene was left to lament what might have been. I mean, I'd won my heat and I'd won my semi, and I thought, you know, I, I think I was expected then to, uh, to to win the final. I didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. And you, you put that down to the slow start? I didn't concentrate enough. I didn't because I can remember getting to about the 50-metre mark and I could see these bottoms in front of me. And I thought, oh, heavens, you know. So I was lucky I had a reasonable finish that that sort of at least got me up to third. But no... It was, it was dreadful. It was so disappointing. I'd give anything to have that race over again. I said, not that, not that you take anything away from Betty because the Olympics is the person who's running the better on the, the best on that particular day. Betty ran the fastest, the best on that particular day. But you had no choice but to accept it, I guess, and just get on with it. Well, of, of, of course. I mean, it's no use giving up, is it? No use sort of... Um, thinking, oh, well, I should have won that, and I'm disappointed, so that's it. I mean, I, I, when I picked up the bronze in the 200, I didn't expect that. I hated running 200 metres. Back in those days, when you ran a 200, go flat out from the gun, you'd sort of coast around the bend and then come run flat out up the straight. Um, but then it was, I suddenly realised, well, you, don't, you couldn't do that. You had to run flat out all the way. Uh, and that was the first 200 I really did that. So I was 
sort of pleasantly surprised, I suppose, that I picked up the, the bronze in the 200. If I'd have won gold, I don't think it would have changed my life anymore. I mean, I've had a wonderful life. I might have got more free invitations to dinners and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> but um, other than the fact that I ran a ghastly race, um, no, I can't complain at all. Betty was great. She didn't really expect to win. They just did very well. Um, Betty kind of came out and, and won the show, and, and she did a really good job. And she was as surprised as anyone, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then she carried on to the 200 as well. And then, of course, the relay. But Beth was a very um, quiet sort of person, very humble. She was a really nice girl anyway. She was a good friend of mine and a good friend of Marlene's as well. I was asked to speak at Betty Cuthbert's funeral in um, in Perth. I don't know, I knew Betty well. And before I made that trip, I went down to the MCG on a quiet day to look at that statue of her and with her mouth open and hands stretched out. And I, I had, I'm not too proud to say I had a real cry, to be honest. Um, wow. And, yeah, that whole, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful historic footnote on the city of Melbourne, isn't it, when you walk down there and walk around the perimeter without even going into the ground and seeing those that have made that inner sanctum so remarkable. And uh, those statues are uh, symbolic of some of the deeds that we've seen over the years. Isn't it great, Hutto, that in the same precinct you can have Bradman, Cuthbert and Matthews? Is she, is she the one that has the most impact on you then when you, when you look at those statues or was it just because of that, that occasion at the time? Oh, I think probably Betty. Um, the occasion certainly got to me as well. But Betty, um, I mean, I've got a, f- a few <laughs> athletes that over the years you've got, you know, Betty and Marjorie Jackson are two that, feel incredible affection towards, uh, you know, Betty followed Marge four years later. And Betty, I loved her story. Um, there's a simplicity about Betty and that, that take that the right way, but there was, and I loved her kindness and her open eyes and the way that she felt she was the luckiest person in the world. Cuthbert's golden feats were crowned in leading the four by 100 metres relay team to victory. But it was the selection of that team that disappointed both Cook Wigney and particularly Matthews, who was inexplicably left out, with Strickland, Fleur Meller and Norma Croker making up the team. There were six of us training. We were all training together for the relay and it wasn't until the morning of the heats that I was told that I wouldn't be in it. Wow. Back in those days, Anthony, you never questioned the officials. Mm. I mean, if it had been today, you would have probably gone to a tribunal and said, look, I've got two, two bronze medals. Um, you say I can't run round a bend and, and all this. But back in those days, you just accepted it. So I just sat up in the grandstand crying my eyes out watching them win the gold medal. Oh, did, did you really? You really were crying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that hurt. That really hurt. I mean, Fleur that they put in. In my place, every time I sort of saw her after that, she used to say, oh, I'm so sorry, Marlene, so sorry. I said, well, it wasn't your fault, except the coach of the relay team was her coach. But um, no, I mean, they just said I couldn't run around a bed. Well, I just picked up the bronze in the 200. They could have put me on the straight if they thought that. I don't know. It was just one of those political things, I think.
there was a lot of interstate kind of jealousy in those. Right. <laughs> and so you had to, um, as I told you, I had to run twice in the Australian Championships because um, a couple of Melbourne girls were fancied. But anyway, um, it was just a little bit of thing that went on between, even in those days between um, New South Wales and Victoria. And Marlene, how bitter a pill was that for you to swallow? It was a very, very bitter pill to swallow. But as I say now, yeah, it was a, it would have been a gold medal, but I, it hasn't um, affected my life in any way. As I say, I might have got a few more invitations for free <laughs> dinners and things like that, but no, um, I haven't been badly done by it. Although Marlene is known for being one of our most unlucky athletes, she achieved some amazing things going on to win two individual gold medals at the 1958 Empire Games in Edinburgh. Incredibly, she also set world records in the 100 yards, 220 yards and 400 metres events in the two years after 1956, beating Cuthbert on two of those occasions. But it was Betty who was the undisputed golden girl of the Melbourne Games as she captured the hearts of the Australian public. Just what she did for a nation, you know, she was a... Somebody who had those golden moments um, in 1956 in front of a, a nation that, you know, wasn't that long out of the war and we were still finding ourselves. And uh, 1956 was very important, Hutto, uh, with the MCG because it, an historian will tell me if I'm right, but I think it was the first time that Japanese people were allowed to come to Australia. I could be completely wrong on that, but I, I've heard these stories about it, Melbourne opened itself up, Australia opened itself up. It was like um, we were moving forward. It was a it was a punctuation point, an historical, political punctuation point in this country. A bit like Freeman's race in two thousand was a punctuation point for Indigenous people in the country, and maybe for you know gender equality in sport. Depends on how deeply you want to look into it. But nineteen fifty six certainly played a massive role in Australia opening its arms to the rest of the world after after the uh, the, the terrible times that everyone had endured uh, from nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five. People were genuinely surprised from overseas. They were genuinely surprised how friendly everyone was, how low-key it was, how excited everyone was, and they all got on so well together at the Olympic Village. And I think that's that's where you get that that friendly games from, in spite of you know some of the political problems that were there. Gordon Bennett is a legendary name in Melbourne and Australian sporting television circles after a storied career where he played a pivotal role for Channel 7 from its inception as it led the way in broadcasting live sports in this country, particularly Australian rules and the Olympic Games, as well as the much-loved magazine program World of Sport. It's quite incredible to hear how it all started for Gordon at a very tender age when he got what turned out to be the opportunity of a lifetime as TV began in this country. I was 14 in November of 1956. I managed to get a job as an office boy at Channel 7 in Melbourne. When I said to my parents, I'm going to uh, go and work for Channel 7, they said, what actually is that? And I said, a television station. <laughs> I didn't know much about it. They knew nothing about it. They took a risk and took me out of school and let me go and work for them. Well, I was the office boy. And that meant just travelling around Melbourne by foot or by tram and uh, delivering parcels. Then came 
the Olympic Games and they said to me, we want you to play a part in this. And what they wanted was me to go to the MCG and go through the press gate and go down onto the boundary and wait for the cameraman and pick up his rolls of film that he had already taken and take them back to for processing at Channel 7. That to me was pretty important because I'd really never been in amongst crowds and to go to the MCG, all I'd heard about the MCG was how the football was played and I just went over there and went down through the gate and I would be stopped because I was so young and I had a press pass but I had to tell them that I was there to pick up film for Channel 7. And uh, I got down to the gate onto the arena. I just thought that was fantastic going onto the MCG uh, and looking around and seeing the crowd. I was as nervous as anything. And anyway, I ran it back through the gardens and uh, I think I could have won the uh, 100 metres uh, at that stage because uh, I'd, I'd go like hell because it had been rammed into me how important it was to get that film back from the MCG. What was the technology like? The cameramen on the MCG for Channel 7 had very small cameras. Uh, they took a cassette of a film which ran for 2 minutes 40 seconds and they had to be very sparing with that because uh, the film was expensive and uh, television was only new. They'd go onto the ground and take cutaway shots of the crowd. They'd film a lot of the events from ground level. But their problem was that the camera was a wind-up camera and they'd wind it up and they'd get 30 seconds of use out of that wind. So they had wow. to time themselves to make sure that any event that they were taking on the arena was within that 30 seconds so that the event didn't finish and they have no film left. So they had to time it all out. Anyway, it was quite a precision thing. And really for a 14-year-old kid to be involved in that, to be part of the Olympic Games at the MCG has really stuck with me for the rest of my life. Were you a little overawed? There were some names because of reading the papers, you know, Ron Clark lighting the torch. Well, the lead up to that was quite strong. So I knew the importance of that and I actually stopped on the um, arena and looked up and saw him light the cauldron and I thought that was just amazing. And being so young, it was all new to me. I probably did take the importance of that and throughout my life doing my sporting jobs and becoming involved in uh, Olympics over the years, I met up with Ron Clark and in fact he was one of our commentators in uh, Barcelona and Moscow. Uh, I got to know Ron very well and uh, got to know his wife and it was a lifelong association with Ron, all from remembering just standing there on the first day of the Games and watching that cauldron being lit by Ron Clark. How many people were actually watching and where were they watching? You've got to remember that television was very new in November. Channel 7 had been on air from November 4th and really there were only about 500 sets uh, owned by people out in the suburbs. Most people watched their television by standing around windows in Burke Street and Collins Street 
where um, the main stores had uh, put television sets so that you could see how it worked and what was on it. Well, at some stages throughout the Olympic Games, there used to be crowds uh, lining the streets in front of the windows from 10 deep to 20 deep. Um, it was very new and also new to the people that were covering the event at the MCG. Uh, for example, Seven had a new OB van, state-of-art OB van in 1956, which had three <laughs> cameras, and that was it. They were all cabled cameras, so uh, when the cameras appeared to work on the MCG, they had to be cabled back to the van, and uh, in the van was a, uh, a director. His name was Alf Potter, who went on to be a very famous football director and directed nearly all Sevens Grand Finals. The three cameras were terrific and uh, they had all three up in one of the stands um, because they didn't quite understand how all this had to be filmed and they put them all together. So because there were no zoom lenses in those days, camera one would be a wide shot, camera two would be a lens which was just a medium shot to take in the whole running arena and camera three would be the close-up of the finish. So they all cut together. It wasn't flash, but you could see it and uh, it worked well for three camera coverage. These people had never uh, worked on Olympic Games. They'd never panned with um, running Olympians. Um, they didn't know how to follow a javelin, for example. And, you know, these days you must be very uh, pure and perfect when you're panning a camera so that you keep up with all the action. Well, these cameramen hadn't had that training, so they had to do a lot of training. And a lot of that was done in a studio at Channel 7 with a ball hanging on a piece of string where they'd throw it from one side of the studio to the other just so that the cameramen could follow. But you've got to remember the quality in those days wasn't the flashiest and it was all in black and white, a little bit blurry. Uh, but when you didn't have anything to compare it to, it was very enjoyable to watch. What they would do is um, they'd cover all the events at the MCG and after six o'clock, uh, he would then hop in the van and take the driver's seat and uh, drive around to the swimming stadium. They would have a police escort to get them through the traffic because they really didn't have a minute to spare. They had to pull all that gear out of the MCG and then drive it round to the uh, Olympic pool, set it up at the Olympic pool and cover the swing for that night. And then uh, later that evening when it was all finished, they'd take all the gear back to the MCG and set it up for the next day. So it was a very difficult time for them and remembering uh, they had no videotape, they had no slow motion, they had no links to Sydney, they just had three big cameras, no zoom lenses and uh, somebody who was very worried but made a great success out of it in Elf Potter. We set a camera, a movie camera, up in front of a TV set, an Aster 17 inch TV set, lined the, um, the camera up with the screen and put the microphone in front of the speaker and the side of the uh, television set and filmed all the main events. Now, that was very, very primitive and technically not the most perfect way to go. 
but it was a picture. Yeah. Anyway, we'd do this with the main events and you had to remember in those days that Sydney couldn't see any of these Olympics and well, neither could any of the other states. So we would film what ELF was putting out, um, but then we would process that and take little bits out for the news and then put it all back together and rush it out to Essendon Aerodrome to get the latest last plane out from uh, Melbourne on that night and send it to Sydney and they would see it the next day, the next day at six o'clock in their news. So um, it was so primitive, but it was so good in those days. Now, to have the, the knowledge and to have seen what went on during the 1956 games at the MCG from a television point of view was one of the best groundings a person could ever have. And I was lucky enough at the age of 14 to be there. I hope you're enjoying some wonderful reminiscing of the 1956 Olympic Games. Of course, you can get your own experience of the Games by visiting the Australian Sports Museum either at the ground or online. And the manager of Heritage and Museums at the MCC, Jed Smith, was able to tell us about some of the amazing features of the 20,000-strong piece Olympic collection. The cauldron from 56, as ignited by Ron Clark, stood tottering on that um, kind of uh, fruit crate and almost falling over as he lit it. That is our pride and joy. That's got centrepiece in our museum display for the Olympics. It's the original. It's the one that was hoisted up there in between what is now in the Olympic stand, but at the time was halfway between the Great Southern Stand and the Northern Stand. Um, it's in great condition. Um, and it nearly didn't survive. After the Games, it was disposed of and it was lost, effectively. And it wasn't until some time later that someone spotted it in a uh, Melbourne City Council car park or a landfill or something. And they saw it in the corner and thought, hold on, that looks familiar. Thankfully, they did. They rescued it. They donated it back to the MCC. So we have it and it survived. Um, and you can see it, the original, if you ever need confirmation, because if you look at those photos of it, it glowing and shining and being symbolic during those games, you'll see that there's a little trapdoor in the middle of it which is always springing open. They never quite mastered the lock for that. And sure enough, hours, the little door, it always springs open. You can't lock it. Um, so these little touches that just remind you that this is the original thing. That was the one that was lit. It was hoisted up there on the stands. Um, and there it is in the middle of the museum display. It's this beautiful thing. And what else will people be able to see? We've got some of the gold medals um, that were won. Uh, Shirley Strickland's um, particularly. I just, I just can't help staring at those. Just think of the the feats of, you know, just being able to do what she did and uh, in front of the world, just to have those gold medals, uh, which were donated to us and we reacquired them. That, that's just an extraordinary thing to have in our collection to be able to, to point out and say, look, they were gold medals from 56. It's yeah. just an extraordinary thing to be able to display. On the other side of the coin, you've got a, the cheap and cheerful ephemera that wasn't supposed to last, but the, the bottle tops, the matchboxes, the, the paper bags, the stuff that wasn't supposed to last as long as it has that those things look gorgeous um, and they're well looked after in our collection and they look as fresh as the day they were first um, unwrapped in 1956. Um, and it's really the early days of that sort of approach to the Olympics, which have, you know, then, of course, went gangbusters. Um, and I love a set of matchboxes we've got, which have all got different poses and different sports on them. 
They look fragile because they're so old and they weren't supposed to last months, let alone 50, 60, 70 years. Um, but they're gorgeous and I really love them. I love the idea of someone in the pub just sort of striking a match, watching you know, watching the procession go past outside with the torch relay, using these little matches. It's just it's a real moment in time and they really take you back there. Tell us about the official Olympic poster designed by Richard Beck and, and why you see it as being so significant. Up until that point, the Olympic posters, there was always one official poster for each Games and they were inevitably showing a bronze, semi-naked male running or throwing or jumping. So Richard Beck's poster for 56 was a total departure from that. And it really talks to the fact that 56 was a real watershed moment. You've got to remember that um, the context of this is that when Richard Beck did design the poster in 1954, it was less than 10 years since the Second World War had finished. So you're right on the cusp of that disaster, that horror. It was still very fresh in people's minds. You've also got the, the Cold War at one of its absolute peaks, You've got wars in Southeast Asia. You've got you know, disaster upon famine upon disaster. It's, it, was a, it was a really intense time. So his poster really symbolizes a break from all that, a break from the past. It was a very modernist approach. There was, if, you, if you haven't got a version of it in, in front of you, get one. Look it up on Google now, Richard Beck, 1956 poster, uh, Melbourne Olympics. It's this beautiful deep blue background representing the ocean around Australia. And then you've got this simple white sort of zigzag image, like an invitation card. On the front, you've got the Olympic rings, and on the back, you've got the crest of the city of Melbourne. And it's simple, and it's warm, and it's welcoming, and it's modernist. There's no representation of athletes or references to Greek or the past. It's very forward-looking. It's about a fresh start. It's about Australia being different to all of those things that have gone before, not part of that narrative of war and famine and hatred. It's a really bold statement about how Australia was going to do things differently um, and how these games were going to be different and how they reflected that difference. Um, extraordinary, bold piece of art and ahead of its time. Yeah. So much so that it didn't actually catch on. Although it was the official poster, you can't see it represented anywhere. Normally, the official poster is all over the stamps, all over the tea coasters, you know, it's all over the jumpers, but it doesn't get used because it was too much for most people. So it was a real striking statement that kind of fell on deaf ears. There's so many aspects of the 1956 Games that we don't have time to detail in this episode. But as David Studham explains, it is worth remembering that the MCG hosted more than just the athletics. There were. We had the finals for the for the soccer and for the hockey. So the semi-finals and the and the finals. The the preliminary rounds took place over at Olympic Park, and then you you had the situation with the hockey, um, where India beat Pakistan one 0 in the final. Most of the Indian team were playing barefoot because the ground was so much harder being prepared for for athletics and track and you know the the, the field events than it was for over at Olympic Park where they had much softer surface. So they took off their, their shoe and were playing barefoot for most of that game. Wow. And, of course, basketball legend Lindsay Gaze was also involved as a young amateur footballer. I think he was an emergency for the demonstration game. Yes, Aussie rules football. You had the VAFA versus a combined group of amateurs that had played for the VFL and the VFA. And the other demonstration sport was, was baseball, where you had the the US Pacific Command Forces send a, uh, a team of baseballers to take on Australian amateurs. And David, the way closing ceremonies are organised changed forever after Melbourne, didn't it? 
that was very different. That's where you had Johnny and Wing, the young um, Chinese boy, uh, right to to uh, the organising committee and say, look, why don't you get them all to march as one? You know, there's there's problems with the world. We've you know we've got a cold war, um, but the Olympics are supposed to be all about one and one family and all together. And he suggested that the the athletes all march together, or not march, just walk and wave and, and cheer. But if you look at the footage, they marched. They, you know, because they couldn't get out of their marching routine. But they mixed up all the nationalities together. Previously, it had been another parade of, of different nations. This was a parade of athletes marching as one. So, and it's a lasting legacy that the Melbourne Olympics has given to the, to the Games. So how big an impact do the Games really have, do you think, both on us and the rest of the world? You know, it's the first Olympics in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a different time of year. People have to come so far away from, you know, North America and Europe for, for where the other Games had been. And they were coming to a different, you know, a different place, different attitudes, different lifestyle. And I think they found it all quite fascinating. The Olympics left its mark on Melbourne and made us far more cosmopolitan. So many of the chefs that had been brought out to cook for different teams stayed and set up restaurants in Melbourne and, and left a big legacy there. Um, and it just, it, and it, I think it changed our attitudes about the world too. Well, I think you can argue that this was this is the MCG's greatest hour. You know, for those fifteen days, the world is watching the MCG. It does give it that final stamp, I reckon. If you can say you're an Olympic stadium and the Melbourne Cricket Ground's famous for so many things, but I reckon if you're an international sports lover, probably, unless cricket's your number one game or you're an expatriate and you love footy, um, the first thing you think about the Melbourne Cricket Ground is the 1956 Olympics. So incredibly important, incredibly important. The voice of the Olympic Games in Australia, the legendary Bruce McAvaney rounding out our fond look back on the 1956 Games at the MCG. A big thank you to Bruce, MCC librarian David Studham, and the manager of Heritage and Museums, Jed Smith. And don't forget to check out the more than 20,000 items in the Olympic collection at the Australian Sports Museum. Thanks too to the ABC for the use of their audio commentary of the women's 100 metres final and the lighting of the Olympic flame. And finally, a very special thank you to the amazing Gordon Bennett, Gloria Cook-Wigney and Marlene Matthews. It was a privilege to chat with them and wonderful they have such clear and honest recollection of such a big event in their lives. And of course, thank you for being with us. AFL footy finals are not far away and fingers crossed you can be part of them once again and join us at the Jeep.